Welcome to the Heartland Free Sermon Podcast. We're so happy to have you. If you're a first-time listener and you'd like to get to know more about us as a church, click the link in the podcast description. And if you'd like to fill out our online connection card, you can do that there as well. Thanks for joining us, and let's get into a fantastic message. Well, we are glad that you are here today. We are on a series of messages called God Speaks, We Respond. Uh, Last week, we were at Mount Sinai. Remember that? Uh, Do you remember the uh, trouble that I got into on Mount Sinai? (laughs) Very locked in my memory, uh, Mount Sinai. So um, today, we're moving along here. Actually, going to do five messages in the Old Testament, five messages in the New Testament, and five messages that are yet to come. These are prophecies about the future. So it's going to be 15 messages all told. God speaks, we respond. God is speaking today, He is speaking in our current era. How are you responding to Him? Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you that uh, we can come together today as your people. We thank you, God, that you are here with us. Your presence fills this sanctuary just as it filled Solomon's temple. Thank you, God. Speak to our hearts today and cause us to respond in a manner that is pleasing to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Why is the Song of Solomon in the Bible? You ever wondered about that? You know, maybe you're reading through the Bible and you, uh, you go through the Psalms and the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and then you come to the Song of Solomon and you go, whoa, what is this all about? Now, most evangelical scholars have viewed the book Song of Solomon as a love song between King Solomon and his Lebanese farm girl turned queen, the Shulamite woman. It is assumed that this was Solomon's first wife, his one true love. You know, sex and marriage was taken very seriously in Jewish culture. Weddings were joyful occasions. They lasted a whole week. And the union was expected to last a lifetime. Only later did Solomon fall into sin and take 700 wives and 300 concubines. I was talking to somebody yesterday reading through the Bible the first time and came across that verse and go, whoa, that is, uh, what is going on there? Initially, Solomon courted, married, and consummated his union with the Shulamite woman in a manner that was pleasing to God, and then he went off the rails. Now, the Jews also saw their whole nation as married to God. You see this in Isaiah, (coughs) as well as the prophet of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea. This is a continual theme in the Old Testament. And that is why the Jews would always read the Song of Solomon on the eighth day of Passover. On that day, they celebrated that God had delivered them out of Egypt because he loves them, according to Deuteronomy 7. Later, God married them at Mount Sinai when Israel accepted the covenant. But that's not all. 
Dr. David Jeremiah says this, in a day when marriage is being redefined and reconsidered by contemporary culture, the Song of Solomon could not be more relevant. It is no mistake that this biblical view of marriage represents the pattern for the relationship between Christ and his church in Ephesians 5. He goes on to point out that both our relationship to our spouse and to our Lord are to be a permanent union based on love and faithfulness and purity. Pastor Rick Warren says much the same thing, quote, this is the deepest meaning and the most profound purpose of marriage. And this is the strongest reason why marriage can only be between a man and a woman. There is no other relationship, including the parent-child relationship, that can picture this intimate union. To redefine marriage, says Rick, would destroy the picture that God intends for marriage to portray. It is the picture of Christ and his church. That is why Christopher West teaches that God wants to marry us. In his book, Our Bodies Tell God's Story, he explains that God desires more than just intellectual belief from us. He wants a relationship with us at the deepest level like that of a healthy marriage between a loving husband and an adoring wife. In evangelical circles, we love to talk about having a relationship with God. You know, and if you are new to the faith, maybe you have heard those, that wording, to have a relationship with God. And maybe you've wondered, well, what does that look like? Well, today, we are going to talk about that. In fact, this whole series... We're talking about a relationship. How do we relate to the maker of our soul? How do we relate to him? Today, I want to explore three features in a genuine relationship with God. Number one, first, relationship, uh, first feature of a relationship with God is a place. We need a place to meet with God. Now look at 2 Chronicles 7.1. It says, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The word temple in verse 1 is habayat in Hebrew. It usually is translated as house. It refers to a place where someone lives, their home. Slightly different Hebrew word for temple is used in verse 2, bayat. And the word again, almost always translated as house. Does God reside in a house? Well, the answer is yes, but there's more to the story. Yes, the temple was a special meeting place with God, but 1 Kings 8, Solomon says this in his prayer, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you, how much less this temple I have built. Clearly, the problem isn't that God needs a place to meet with us. The problem is that we need a place to meet with him. Can I ask you today, do you have a special place to meet with God? 
Jesus said, Matthew 6, 6, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. The Greek word for room refers to a secret chamber, a closet, a place where you store your valuables. This word points to a private place where you will be unbothered. And you know what? For some of us, that's hard to find. Susanna Wesley, the mother of the great preacher John Wesley, had 19 children. One, nine children. Now, when you're in a small house with 19 kids, <laughs> privacy is impossible, right? So she taught her kids that whenever she would put her apron over her head, that was her special time of prayer with God. Her not-so-secret prayer chamber. You know, Jesus modeled for us what this looks like. Luke 5, it says, Crowds of people came to him, hear him, be healed of their sicknesses. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Can you imagine the demands on his time? Jesus, can you take a selfie with me? <laughs> That's what we'd be doing today, right? <laughs> Everybody wanted a piece of Jesus. Sometimes Jesus prayed in the early morning when it was still dark, Mark 1. Sometimes he prayed in the evening after the crowds went home, Matthew 14. One time he prayed all night, all night long, Luke chapter 6. How about you? When do you meet with God? You know, the Bible tells us that prayer moves mountains. My mother was a prayer warrior, kept a prayer booklet. Her kids were always at the top of her prayer list. And you know what? I am so thankful for being the son of a praying mom. I wouldn't trade that for a billion dollars. I really wouldn't. Individual prayer is important. We also need corporate prayer with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And as we pray, God moves. He really does. Let me share an example of what this looks like. Early this year, we lost our beloved Tony Worm. And uh, I recognized later that, uh, in fact, I woke up with a start uh, one morning when we were on vacation down in Florida, five o'clock in the morning, and the Lord just revealed this to me. Not only did di Tony die on Friday the 13th, he died at the 13th hour of Friday the 13th. Okay? Satan loves to do th things like that. It was a satanic attack, not only on Tony and his family, it was a satanic attack on all of us. Because after his tragic accident last summer, Tony had given all of his testimony to our various groups in our church and so forth. We were praising God and then he descended into this deep depression until he took his own life. But we are confident that Tony is with Jesus because of his clear profession of faith in Christ. And you know, that week between Tony's death and Tony's funeral, 
one of the most interesting weeks of my life because you could feel the prayers of God's people, both individually and corporately. You could feel it. I believe it was the prayers of God's people that carried Heidi and Samantha through that tragic week and all of us who were ministering to the family that week. God was truly the wind beneath our wings. It is amazing the intensity of Satan's attack. For 27 consecutive days, I had this crazy pain in my L3 in my back, had three chiropractic appointments, had an orthopedic appointment. They couldn't touch it. And I was starting to, uh, in fact, the, the only thing that um, I could function was 12 ibuprofen a day, you know, just to function. And uh, my vision was starting to get blurry. <laughs> and I, I even made an appointment with my eye doctor. And uh, Sue and I were scrolling through, you know, cataracts and all this stuff. You know, this was going on during that week. And I woke up that Thursday morning, the day before the funeral, I woke up at 4 a.m., the pain was completely gone. Hasn't come back since. Went from 12 ibuprofen a day to zero. And I told Sue that morning, I said, God's people are praying. I can feel it. When I went in for my eye exam, the, the lady said, she said, your eyes have not changed one iota in seven years. Vision was restored completely. And that Friday morning, as I got up to speak at the funeral, I could barely catch my breath. In fact, that whole week, it was one of the most interesting episodes of my life. As I sat down to write that, that funeral sermon, it was the most uh, amazing feeling of God wanting me to say exact wording. In fact, I'd write some things down and was just like, no, God said, no, I don't want it said like that. You need to say it like this. It, it was almost like, you know, you imagine the people re writing the Bible originally. And the Holy Spirit was moving so powerfully that that day as 425 people you know, crowded into this sanctuary here and uh, we had this magnificent worship time and I told our worship director, Megan, I said, I felt like I was drawn into the heavenlies. And uh, you know what? As I got up to speak, I could barely find my voice. You see, folks, we as mortals, we cannot conjure up stuff like that. We, we can't manufacture that. That is the power of God's people praying. The power of God's people seeking his face. Don't neglect that. Fellowship with God individually, fellowship with God corporately, where you seek God with others. It's so important. And if you're looking for a group to pray with, come and join us on Thursday. We just make a circle out here in the foyer. Uh, Thursday evenings at 6.30, you say, well, I don't know how to pray. Well, come and make a stab at it. Because prayer is just talking to God, and we all do it differently. 
You know what, folks? God created us as social beings. One of the lasting lessons of COVID crisis is that we found out how much we need each other. (laughs) And there's a reason why the Bible says, let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Here at Heartland, we thank God that he has blessed us with this beautiful building dedicated to the worship of the one true God who reigns over the universe. And I remember well when we dedicated this sanctuary in 2002 and one of our church patriarchs, Floyd Brown, sang that day, right, stood right here where I am. And he sang, he sang bless this house. And you could feel, you could feel, I just felt shivers coursing down my body. I believe the Holy Spirit filled this building that day, just like he filled Solomon's temple. You know what? Throughout church history, buildings great and small have been built to the glory of God. In Europe, it took an average time of 250 to 300 years to build a cathedral. There were men who worked on a cathedral their entire working lives knowing they would never see the finished product. The Bristol Cathedral here in England took 688 years to build. It is magnificent. But Jesus also reminded us that the the church is wherever God's people are gathered. Today in China, the true church has gone underground, meeting in homes and small gathering places so as not to draw attention. And Jesus said, Matthew 18, 20, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am with them. You know what, folks? That isn't a want. That's a need for any true follower of Jesus. Do you realize that 59 times in the Bible we're commanded to be together? 59 times we're commanded to love one another, to encourage one another, to forgive one another, to bear one another's burdens. And all of those commands, you cannot do those in isolation. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need each other in small groups, in Bible studies, in social times, and yes, in corporate worship. If you're not physically able to be here, you know what? Online worship is awesome. But if you are able to be here, come and rub shoulders with your church family. And if you have an open heart, God's going to bless you. As followers of Christ, we must find a place to meet with God, alone and together. If you truly want a relationship with God, that is absolutely essential. Now let's move to the second feature of a relationship with God, and that is a way to meet with God. You need a place to meet with God. You need a way to meet with God. Verse 3 says, They knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord. The Hebrew word for worship means to bow down. Charles Stanley died this week. Great preacher from Atlanta, Florida. Many of you have listened to him on the radio. Love to hear Charles Stanley preach. 
Charles Stanley began and ended every day on his knees. Isn't that amazing? What an example he is to us. Worship means to bow down, to revere, to pay homage as to a king, to fall flat on the ground, to honor. The heart of this practice is to attribute worth to God. Bible says, Ephesians 5.31, a man will be united to his wife, the two will become flesh, one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and his church. Now let's be clear. There's nothing sexual about your relationship with the Lord. But you can compare, in certain ways, romance between a husband and wife and worship between Christ and his followers. Romance is an essential part of any healthy marriage. No wife wants a husband who says, I told you once that I love you, and if anything changes, I'll let you know. (laughs) Who wants to be married to that guy? Romance to your spouse is a continual affirmation of your love for each other. It's socially by being best friends, emotionally by being confidants, spiritually by being soulmates, and physically by being lovers. That's the four legs of the marital chair. And all four are equally important. Worship to our Lord is the continual affirmation of our love for him. Socially, by being best friends. Emotionally, by bearing your deepest secrets to him, like David does in the Psalms. Spiritually, by the rhythm of prayer and scripture, and physically, by offering our bodies as living sacrifices. That's what the Bible says, okay? Offering our lives in service to the Lord. Part of romance is saying, I love you, and whispering those sweet nothings in your ears and so forth. It includes more than that, but not less than that. And the same is true of worship. Part of worship is singing praise songs on Sunday morning. It's honoring God with your lips. It includes more than that, but not less than that. There's a reason that our gatherings on Sunday morning are called worship services. For worship encompasses everything that we do when we gather together. For example, we give sacrificial offerings just like Solomon did, okay? You know, and Solomon gave a pretty uh, sacrificial offering there, doesn't he? If your offering is not sacrificial, it really isn't an offering. It's more like a tip, you know, in a restaurant. You know, the thanks waitress, you took good care of us, here's a $5 bill, you know? Notice in verse 4 that both the king and the people, they brought their sacrifices to the Lord, And verse 5 tells us that King Solomon brought a king-size sacrifice. 22,000 cattle, 120,000 sheep and goats. I would say that's a king-size sacrifice. Verse 6 also tells us they took musical instruments. 
And they sang the Psalms of David. Verse 7 tells us that Solomon consecrated the courtyard in front of the temple. Consecration was woven into every part of the worship. The Hebrew word is kadash. It means to set apart, to make holy, to purify, to sanctify. We do this when we confess our sins. That was a big part also of dedicating the temple. You say, well, how do you know that? Look at verse 14, which is the most famous verse in this chapter. In fact, it was this verse, 2 Chronicles 7:14, that Ronald Reagan laid his hand upon this verse with his mother's Bible opened, laid his hand on this verse when he took the oath of office as a president of the United States. Isn't it an amazing thing? Boy, do we need that today. You know, I cannot think, here, here's, here's what this verse says. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Oh, do we need that. I can't think of a better summary for what worship really is. The way that you and I meet with God is worship. It includes joy, praise, humility, confession, offerings, generosity, prayers, seeking him. I love the way the verse 14 begins. If my people who are called by my name. <laughs> that reveals so much about the relationship that God wants with us, his people. My children and my grandchildren, they're very special to me. They are called by my name and will forever be a part of the Johnson family line. The same is true of our church family. The Heartland family, there is a bond, there is a connection that we have with each other that we don't have with any other church. So when I was down in Florida and worshiping three different churches, I'm always looking around for Megan. Where's Megan? So I think Megan just, does, it just doesn't feel like worship unless Megan's leading it, you know? Most important of all is the family of Christ. Even more important than the Heartland family is the greater family of Christ. All of his precious followers that he laid down his life for. Are you part of the family line of Christ? The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, our Maker, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Friend. Now let's move to the third feature of our relationship with God. We have to have a place to meet with God. We have to have a way to meet with God. And we have to have a time to meet with God. Look at verse 8. So Solomon observed the festival at that time for seven days. Look at all the references here to time. For seven days, all Israel with him, a vast assembly, people from Lebo Hamath to the Wadi of Egypt, on the eighth day, they held an assembly for they had celebrated the dedication of the altar for seven days and the festival for seven days more. 
And on the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people to their homes, joyful and glad in heart. Notice all those references to time. Is time important to God? You bet it is. Six references to time. If you want to have a meaningful relationship with anyone, you have to set aside time to be with them. Without question, this is also true of our relationship to God. Today, here in America, we are very time conscious. Talk to anyone who, for more than 30 seconds, they're likely to say, I've been so busy. After all, no one wants to admit if they've been laying around the house watching Netflix all day. You ever have any somebody, yeah, I've just been laying around the house, you know, watching hour after hour after hour. No one says that. On social media, we post all the stuff we've been doing. And if we see that someone else has been doing more than we have, we get FOMO, fear of missing out. Last day we were in Florida. My wife Sue took a picture of me. I had two coats on, two hoodies, and my, and my cap, and my gloves. And I'm huddled there by the ocean as the waves are roaring in. Oh, I was having such a good time. <laughs> You're not always missing out. That's my point. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'm up here. You know, I could have been in Canada, you know? Alaska or something. Ironically, what often gets put to the side in all of our busyness are the things that are the most important of all, which is our relationship to God, our relationship with God's people, our relationship to our spouse, and our relationship to our family. Those four things, they often get short-changed. You know, out of guilt, we've created this thing we call quality time. You ever... Uh, use that phrase, quality time. If you have 15 minutes at the end of the day to spend with your kid, you sit down with them and you say, tell me about your day, sweetie. And really what you're thinking is, and make it snappy. <laughs> I mean, I haven't got all day. I mean, the ball game starts in 10 minutes. Heartland family, we have to get off the treadmill of what we think is the good life in order to experience the best life. There is no substitute for carving out premium time in your day for the highest priorities. What are they? Your spouse, your family, your God, your, your forever family. That's what we are, your forever family. We will be together forever up there. No one ever says on their deathbed, man, I wish I would have spent more time at work. Oh, I wish I would have spent more time polishing up my golf game. Oh, I mean, if I could only have watched one more football game, what are they going to do without me, their number one fan? No one says that. The fact is, we can learn a lot from the Israelites. Like the sacredness of the fourth commandment. 
Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, to set it apart. One day in seven was God's day. It was a built-in reminder for them of their bridegroom, spending time with their bridegroom, their shepherd, the lover of their souls. And the Israelites had this regular rhythm of festivals, seven key ones up there on the screen, but there were others like the Festival of Purim, which celebrated the deliverance of the Jews by Queen Esther. There was a Festival of Hanukkah, that's not up there, celebrates their deliverance by the Maccabees. Now let me clarify that we, as part of the New Testament church, were not obligated to observe any of these festivals or holidays. Colossians 2.16 says, Do not let anyone judge you with regard to religious festivals, a new moon celebration, or Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality is found in Christ. Folks, you have a lot of freedom in building your relationship with the Lord. But you cannot do it unless you set aside time for it. So built into our calendars today are special times to spend with uh, Jesus, like Christmas and Easter, maybe Thanksgiving. But even here, we have secularized versions of these holidays that seem to erase any spiritual significance. Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny and, and the uh, turkey at Christmas and, or Thanksgiving and all of that. The point is setting aside special times to be with God. Personally, corporately, do you do that? Some of you may remember the section of the Discover Class notebook about building a daily time, building a daily walk with God. And uh, tonight we're going to be talking about that at our Discover Heartland class. I close with this. Many years ago here at Heartland, we invited marriage counselor Willard Harley to come and do a conference with us on marriage enrichment. Dr. Harley's best-selling book is His Needs, Her Needs. It's a great book. Five chapters on the five greatest needs of husbands, five chapters on the five greatest needs of wives. It's a great book. Sue and I have led a couple of marriage enrichment groups through this material. But one of the key observations that Dr. Harley had for us is that, uh, and it's needed today more than ever, is a, it's a very simple principle, and it's simply spending time together as married couple that is pleasant and affirming for both of you. The goal, he says, is 15 hours a week. Now, what's ironic about this goal is that you never have to tell a couple who are dating to spend 15 hours a week together in pleasant and affirming activities. You never have to tell them that. Say, oh boy, you guys need to spend more time together. I've never had all my premarital counseling, I've never had to do that. No matter how busy they are, they automatically carve out 15 hours a week to be together. And yet, Dr. Harley says, he says it always happens Six months after the wedding, almost all couples will start to get lax with this. Very simple principle, 15 hours a week together, pleasant and affirming activities. Now, 100 years ago, in a mostly farming society, there were very few marriages that lacked quality time together. You know why? Even their meal time 
because they shared virtually every meal, even their meal time amounted to 15 hours together a week. And if mama's cooking was good, it was a very pleasant time together. And that is one of the key reasons why there was very little divorce 100 years ago. Now the point is this, if you truly love someone, you are going to carve out whatever is necessary to have a thriving relationship with them. It really shouldn't be any surprise at all that Jesus said the first and greatest commandment, more important than anything else, is to love God. Very simple, to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you love God, friends, if you love God, you're gonna find a place to meet with him, you're gonna find a way to meet with him, and you are gonna find the time to meet with him. Is that your desire today?